0: Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. The 1927 and 28 Bristol Sessions brought country music out of the hollers and onto people's radios. and made stars of Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family. We'll hear about some of the black musicians who played on those sessions.
1: Some blues or something terrible, they'll keep you full of pain.
0: And the banjo has deep roots in Africa and a difficult history in the U.S., We'll hear about black musicians and luthiers who are reclaiming the banjo. I thought, this sound is just,
2: it was like honey from a honeycomb. It was just so warm and so rich. And I said, I need to know more.
0: And we'll meet an artist bringing Mexican folk arts from Mexico City to East Tennessee.
3: I start with wire and tape, and, uh, and later I used paper machete, and you see that it's very colorful.
0: You'll hear these stories and more this week Inside Appalachia. Welcome Inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. When Hector Salvador moved to East Tennessee from Mexico City, he didn't think of himself as an artist. Today, Saldivar's work in clay, papier-mâché, and tile shows at galleries all over the region. Over the years, he's found a way to bring Mexican folk arts to Appalachia, and now he teaches them, too. Folkways reporter Katie Myers visited the artist in a studio in Lenore City, Tennessee, to talk with him about his life and work.
4: Hector Saldivar's art studio is a pretty little building in Lenore City, Tennessee. Inside, two life-size sculptures lounge on a table by the doorway. The interior is shady and lined with leafy plants. Hector and his niece Ariel work intently at a table, dipping strips of paper in papier-mâché by the light of a single lamp. Their extended family surrounds them, Some watching, others playing phone games or texting.
3: Snacks are out at another
4: table to the side. Tortilla chips and guacamole, perfect for a long, tiring day at work. Hector showed me around his studio. One of the first sculptures he showed me was a little fantasy creature made of paper mache. It's bright yellow and speckled with green, sort of like a lizard and a dinosaur. Each one is different. Some are cats, some are dogs, many have wings, some are blue, red, green. It's called an alabrije.
3: It's something traditional from Oaxaca. Yes, but they made with the wood, special wood in Oaxaca.
4: We don't have that wood in the States, so Hector uses his own materials.
3: So that's how I started my, making my alabrijes, but also with paper mache. I start with wire and tape, and, uh, and later I use paper mache like using right now. And you see that it's very colorful.
4: Hector has been living in Knoxville for 35 years. He's always worked with his hands. He says he's only been making art for 13 or 14 of those years. But for decades before that, he was making piñatas for festivals in Mexico City.
3: I'm original from Mexico City, and I start in Mexico making piñatas. And uh, I always enjoy making piñatas.
4: Hector was especially busy around Christmas time during the festival of Las Posadas. Las Posadas is a nine day festival around Christmas, which combines ancient indigenous practices with Catholic ones. And all week, people sing carols and break open piñatas. The piñatas are shaped like stars.
3: You have to make like one piñata each day. They celebrate the Virgin Mary when she was pregnant and she was knocking on the doors. And so they celebrate. It was nine days, no? Not nine, day. nine, yeah, days nine days yeah.
4: Hector's family, too, had to go knocking on some doors. Like many other recent immigrants, they were looking for the surest foothold in the economy they could find. In this case, restaurant work. They opened a restaurant, the second in Lenore City. It had to close a few years later, but they held on to the building.
3: And uh, the building was empty. and But I was working with paper mache dumpsters. And my sister said, why you not put your studio upstairs? It's a good place, no?
4: Over the years, Héctor met and learned from other artists who encouraged him to explore other mediums, like clay, papier-mâché, and tile, using his past of piñata making as inspiration. In Mexico, papier-mâché is an old tradition. It's called cartonería. It originated with indigenous crafts involving leaves and plant fibers. As indigenous peoples were forcibly converted to Catholicism, paper crafts persisted, often within the framework of Catholicism. That's why piñatas are still popular around Christmas time. Like Hector's work, crafts were often made from found materials, like newspapers and cardboard. He had some mentors, but also did a lot of self-teaching.
3: Just, just looking people how when they were making in the market. So it always, you know, when I see people doing something, I can... Try to do it too, you know. That's how I learned.
4: Back when Hector started, he had trouble getting community interest in his work. People were curious, but kind of confused, and even...
3: They say, oh, it's kind of scare my, my skulls. But people now is getting more, you know, interested in Latin culture.
4: And all of a sudden, I see Katrina. If you've ever been to a Day of the Dead celebration, you might recognize her. She's bigger than me. She's wearing an old-fashioned gown and a wide-brimmed black hat. She's one of the more bedazzled skull figures of Mexican folk art. A Mexico City painter invented her in 1913 to mock Mexico City's upper class.
3: That's why she dressed like, you know, very elegant. Also, he was making fun about the dead, you know. That's why they put the the, the faces, skeleton representing, the la muerte, the dead.
4: We walk past a collection of other art projects. Little clay Katrinas, a white sculpture with a silver crown, a skull with a spiky surgical mask, representing COVID-19. Clay replicas of the Tree of Life, a traditional representation of the Garden of Eden. Paintings of Frida Kahlo. Hector returns to the table, where Ariel is working hard at a paper mache sculpture. Hector has been making one too. She's learning from him.
5: Uh, Right now I'm making like a heart out of like
4: newspaper. Hector's recently taken on Ariel as an apprentice, thanks to support from the Tennessee Arts Commission.
3: And I'm working with two horse, with wire.
4: There's also wood that Hector found on a walk. Ariel was born right here in East Tennessee. She says the apprenticeship has helped her reconnect with her heritage.
5: I think it's more like introducing like the Mexican culture to, right. like, to make I guess Appalachians more like diverse and knowledge about the Mexican culture.
4: Hector's work looks colorful and playful,
5: but it has serious
4: cultural connections. I ask him and Ariel if art with deep and resonant meaning for Hector might be taken too lightly by some of the gallery viewers who don't have cultural context for the images. But that's what Hector and Ariel seem to like most about their work. Seeing how its meaning changes in the eyes of the beholder.
5: The main thing about like doing artwork with my uncle is you can see like the different ways that art can be perceived like how subjective um, art actually is because my uncle creates like different meanings for them but other people can see them as one way and it's like really diverse and different and I think that that's my favorite thing is Art can be seen as anything, basically. Like, anything can be art, and it's just, like, re- really beautiful, I guess. Just, like, the different ways that it can be interpreted. Arielle is hoping to show her work, along with
4: actors, in local galleries and festivals across East Tennessee and the region. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Katie Myers.
0: Katie's story is from our Folkways reporting project. The project tells stories about arts and culture across the region, and sometimes flips stereotypes on their head. We've got stories on food, craft, and, of course, music. Now, one instrument that's closely associated with mountain music is the banjo. But the banjo has a hard history here in the U.S. Take this story from Appomattox County, Virginia.
6: So Appomattox County happens to be the birthplace of Joel Sweeney.
0: This is David Wooldridge. He's another one of our Folkways reporters, and he's based in Appomattox. And Joel Sweeney? Is celebrated there as the first popular banjo performer. Sweeney was playing banjo tunes back in the 1800s.
6: He learned from enslaved banjo players who lived a couple miles from his house and eventually made his own and started playing out for friends and family and neighbors and made some money and got a horse and. Wagon and started playing further and further away. So by the time he was in his 20s, he was playing all up and down the Atlantic coast and uh, went over to play in the British Isles in the 1840s. He was doing blackface minstrelsy, and uh, all the performances he did were um, with minstrel troops.
0: David is a banjo player himself. He also works for the National Park Service. And he knows a lot about the history of Appomattox. He says in 1972, people in the community put up a state historical marker for Joel Sweeney.
6: The first one read, here's the title of it, Inventor of the Banjo.
0: Now, obviously, Joel Sweeney didn't invent the banjo. Black people did. Early versions of the instrument appear in the Caribbean as early as the 1600s. And its predecessors date back centuries in Africa. So David says in the 1990s, Sweeney's marker was changed to popularizer of the banjo. But he felt like the change wasn't enough to set the record straight. So David and others in the community got a new marker put up. It's dedicated to unknown African-American banjoists. It went up in 2019. Through that work, David got interested in a growing movement of black musicians in this century who were reclaiming the banjo.
6: So if you know one black banjo player in America in 2022, it's probably Dom Flemmings. Dom Flemings is mostly known for being one of the members of the Carolina Chocolate Drops.
7: Everybody talking about the out
6: days. That was an all-African-American musician string band. In the early 2000s, in this era, when Americana music was, you know, really, um, people were getting into it.
7: And when I'm and blue. and
6: here you have him and his other fellow african-american musician friends playing songs from this early time period where the banjo was just being introduced into white popular culture and music and a lot of the songs come from the era of minstrelsy here he is um, digging into that difficult history so I talked to Dom, Hey
8: Dom, how you doing? You're doing all right, David, How you doing? All right, man.
6: I think that he is a real good ambassador for the history of the banjo. I,
8: I just I saw that there was a need for new African American representation that could present some of the older material. All, but at the same time, not pandering to any sort of backward, thinking or anything like that we were always very 21st century and you know urban hip thinking about you know where does the music go from here instead of trying to be relegated to something in the past
6: and then there are young people like this guy byron thomas i met up in maryland
1: some of the menstrual songs i kind of just have ingrained in my fingertips and not really the the songs themselves yeah i met
6: him through an effort that the arts community up there is trying to um, get going to put in a Maryland State Historical Marker for the black banjoists that were there as early as the 1760s. And we met at Friendship Farm on the Nanjimoy River in Southern Maryland to talk about and play the banjo. So Byron learned about the banjo by reading a story that was in a Boy Scout magazine, and it was about a formerly enslaved man who had decided he was going to make a cigar box banjo.
1: Just finding that article was the thing that brought me to the banjo, just because at that point in my life, I was just the banjo was just a white instrument. So I, I did not really have any kind of inclination to play the banjo at that point until I was like huh, wait a second, what do you mean that there was a, a former slave playing a banjo now I have to figure out what in the world was going on and what has happened because now I'm very curious as to why in modern culture at least you know, mainstream at least and everything, we don't see any black people really playing banjos in front of us
6: And so that's what started it for him, and he just started digging and digging, but at the same time, he's a player, you know, he's interested in the banjo as a living thing, and um, when you hear him play, when you see him play, you can just see that he loves it. He kept saying to me more than once, like, well, if you're a A black person come along the banjo today and you're like i want a nice banjo built by a black luthier there aren't any you know so when i found out about dina and um everything that she's into and the fact that you know she's always building gourd instruments i was like yeah okay
2: hi i just wanted to play a little bit of music for you from a band That I made before it ships out. It's a walnut neck with a little teardrop, a little water drop in the headstock. It has an oak cut out. And that's the neck. This is a beautiful piece of wood. And it's going out to my good brother Bobby. So here's a little music from it before it goes.
6: So uh, Dina Jennings lives up near Orange County, Virginia and grew up most of her life in Ohio.
2: And my mom grew up in a holler in Kentucky in the Cumberland Gap area.
6: So when I met with Dina, we met in an old converted cow barn on her place.
2: And what I didn't realize when I was growing up we were heavily involved in a Pentecostal church, and all of our friends and family and others were from that region of Cumberland Gap. It was pretty much like the the holler during the Great Migration, when a lot of Black families moved from the South to the North. It was almost like that holler unscrewed itself like a light bulb and screwed itself into Akron, where jobs were.
6: She's um, a medical doctor. She is a trained conflict therapist. And she is a gourd banjo builder and musician banjo player.
2: I just wanted to know as much as I could about the banjo. And when I learned that the banjo in North America at least started out as a gourd instrument, it's, well, this is amazing. I used to make a annual trip to Elderly Instruments, which is in Lansing, Michigan. It wasn't far from Akron. So I'd go up there and look around at the instruments that I either couldn't play or couldn't afford <laughs> and at least look at them and then get in the car and come back. But one year I went and I saw this banjo, this amazing banjo, and it was a simple rim banjo with a simple goatskin head um, and simple nylon strings on it. And it was tacked. And I thought, that's amazing. And when I took it off the wall and, you know, plucked around with it because I didn't know how to play a banjo, I thought, this sound is just, it was like honey from a honeycomb. It was just so warm and so rich. And I said, I need to know more.
6: They are pieces of of art. I mean, they're just, they sound lovely. They look lovely. You know, she takes such care with them and she chooses the pieces and she grows the gourds. And it's hard sometimes, you know, when people see them that they, They see this instrument with this hide skin and this gourd and this uh, blank neck. And they're like, what? That's a banjo? You know, but it is. And the gourd banjos seem to be real earthy and real uh, bassy and funky. You know, it just it's obvious that she feels like she has a role to play in fostering a safe space for everybody that wants to explore the history of the banjo, but especially black folks coming to explore the black history of the banjo.
2: You can't know where you're going if you don't know where you've been. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah.
6: Well, do
0: you
2: want one more song?
0: Yes, please. To see photos of Gore Banjos made by Dina Jennings, visit our website, wvpublic.org. We'll hear more from musician Dom Flemons in our next story after the break.
8: When we talk about the legacy of the African-American musicians connected to the Bristol Sessions, their legacy did not go very far, unfortunately.
0: The untold and often uncelebrated black musicians who made country music what it is today. That's next. You're Inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams.
9: George Buck is dead.
0: Back in the summers of 1927 and 28, Bristol, Tennessee was the site of some of the earliest commercial recording sessions of country music. These records launched the careers of country music legends like the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers. The Bristol sessions left such a deep and broad influence. They've become known as the Big Bang of modern-day country music. But that foundation myth leaves out a big part of the origin story of country music, and it leaves out a whole group of musicians. One of our Folkways reporters, Trevor McKenzie, has been looking into this often untold chapter in country music history. Our producer, Roxy Todd, called him up to learn more.
10: So Trevor, you're a musician yourself. What interested you about this time period in country music's history?
11: Well, this is the era that most people think of as sort of the pioneering era of country music. This is where country music sort of grows from these string band traditions and from blues traditions and a lot of these Southern traditions, Appalachian mountain traditions into a commodified industry of marketing this music as country music.
10: Right. It had been, you know, played and porches and in homes and this is really the these are the years when that music went into the studio and became something that people started buying and selling, right?
11: Yeah, and, it, and it's the right along with the advent of recording technology uh, l- allowing this to happen. And so you have a lot of these older traditions. The ballad tradition is one that we could think of sort of being crammed into these uh, discs that are only several minutes long. And so you get sort of tailoring of these songs to this new medium.
10: And let's play a clip from the Bristol Sessions. This is the Carter family playing Poor Orphan Child. I
7: hear
11: Something to keep in mind about this track is uh, the Carter family, part of the reason why we remember the Bristol Sessions is because of the Carter family and because of Jimmy Rogers who were the two acts that came out of these sessions that emerged and became some of the first country music stars. And this is one of their earliest pieces recorded at the Bristol Sessions uh, in 1927. So the Bristol sessions were the brainchild of this A&R man, Ralph Peer, who worked for the Victor Talking Machine Company, and they sort of coincided with this new technology of, they called it orthophonic joy, this microphone that was a sort of stereo microphone, the first of its kind that could pick up the sound better than, than sort of earlier sessions.
10: Now, Trevor, you spoke with music historian Ted Olson about the Bristol sessions, and one of the things you talked about was the way these recordings were marketed.
11: Yeah, so uh, I I got a chance to meet Ted Olson on the streets of Bristol and kind of do a little walking tour of sort of the history of the Bristol Sessions, this sort of legendary event at the beginning of country music. Olson filled me in on this idea that the world that Peer operated in when he set up these sessions, the world that Ralph Peer operated in, was the world of the segregated South and and largely a segregated America uh, at that point. So, you know, they used
10: the term hillbilly because they perceived that it was a southern white audience specifically, uh, or in large part, that would buy these records. It sort
11: of erased the fact that there were these musicians, some of them who participated in the Bristol sessions, who were not white artists and who made significant contributions Uh, to the foundation of country music. One artist that Ted spoke to me in detail about was L. Watson. I don't believe that there's much history known about him, but he was a harmonica player. He recorded a track called Narrow Gauge Blues, which is sort of a train imitation at the sessions. And then he also joined in with a white band, the Johnson Brothers and the the Tennessee Wildcats, and uh, played harmonica for their song called The Soldier's Poor Little Boy. This is a track by another group of African-American musicians, Tartar and Gay, who recorded at the 1928 Bristol Sessions. This is called Unknown Blues. Some blues
1: are something terrible, they'll keep you full of pain. Some blues are something terrible, they'll keep you full of pain. They're blues that keeps you weary. There's the
11: blues that you can't explain. I had a chance to talk with Dom Flemons, uh, who's known for his work with the Carolina Chocolate Drops and then also his own solo projects in more recent years, um, such as the Black Cowboys album from Smithsonian Folkways. And Dom's just a really thoughtful uh, historian and interpreter, a-, a musician who tackles this early era in country music history and in uh, old-time music traditions. There
8: wasn't really a set pattern for what defined country music or defined blues music at that time. And at moments people were, you know, they were they were cross pollinating. they were meeting each other.
11: So all of this was happening in rural areas across central Appalachia. Musicians were playing together, mixing together, swapping songs across these racial lines. The way that the recording industry set all of this up divided musics that would have been seen as overlapping in rural communities or in, in towns across Appalachia. And so it, it's kind of put these artificial barriers into the music uh, that wouldn't have been there traditionally.
8: So the the music ended up being marketed on segregation terms. And that doesn't necessarily change the way the music was being made, but it does change the way that the business of how the music is being marketed and distributed, it, it changes the way that that's being handled.
11: So in telling this story, we have to think of the people that didn't go on to be stars like the Carter family or Jimmy Rogers. There were so many other participants in these sessions who contributed to this early history of what would become country music.
8: When we talk about the, the legacy of, of the African-American musicians connected to the Bristol Sessions, their legacy did not go very far, unfortunately.
10: And I want to play one more clip here. This is from your interview with Ted Olson, the music historian we heard from earlier. He said something interesting about his own role in kind of helping promote this legend around the birthplace of country music. And he really wants to dig in deeper and reveal more of the context around this story. You know, I'm all about... uh, appreciating what happened here. And I'm also all about popping some of the myths because to be honest, the story is so much larger than this. So Olson
11: actually has a podcast devoted to highlighting black contributions to Appalachian music that he co-hosts alongside Dr. Bill Turner, who's one of the first historians to write about the history of black communities in Appalachia. People
7: can find a, a host of, of folk that uh, have been uh, overshadowed, overlooked, but uh, that is the joy of what we're doing is that we're turning these rocks over.
11: We had a chance to talk to Bill Turner about this topic, and he even shared some of his reflections on his own experience, his own personal history with country music.
7: But My dad was always a devotee to what many of our black friends call white mountain music, and he really liked it, and he liked the Grand Ole Opry. Uh, And when you think about where I grew up, uh, they didn't play what we call black music. They played country music all the time, whether he liked it or not.
10: So Trevor, as a musician who loves this music, now knowing a little bit more of the backstory, does it kind of, I don't know, change your perception of how you see the Bristol Sessions and the birthplace of country music and this, this story that we've really told around the Bristol Sessions?
11: Well, I think it uh, really kind of, heartens me in a way as a musician to to hear this sort of re-examination that's going on around this story and uh, I think something to take away from this and something that I was really struck by in speaking with Don Flemons in particular is that the musicians have always known where this music came from and how much interaction there was um, and how much diversity there was in the creation of this music that's never been lost on the people that are doing the actual picking but, For this sort of idea of the music itself pitted against an industry where, you know, the industry needs these boxes to put music in. And sometimes it's very negative how those boxes are used. And it carries into our perceptions of how we view music. But for the people that actually produce the music, the people that love it and know it and play it, they've always understood that this is where it came from.
8: When it comes to actually music, when music making happens, people aren't really thinking about demographics. They're thinking about how good the music is, the quality of the music. And if it's a situation where people are in a very personal, intimate situation, like a a house gathering or something like that, where everybody's thinking about the music, they're not thinking about the other things. And that was something that as 21st century performers, we tried to at least um, instill that in the audience. And I still try to do that now to instill in the audience that this is a, we we can think of this in a forward manner.
10: And I mean, there have been people speaking out about country music and its lack of diversity. Do you have any thoughts about where the industry is today, if it's becoming more accepting of black musicians?
11: Yeah, um, I, I think we're seeing, you know, in our in our era right now, a more diverse pool of people that can be considered country music artists. But I also think, you know, as somebody who's really interested in the history and the roots of this, I think we're seeing an even greater acknowledgement um, due to the work of people like uh, Dr. Turner and Dom Flemons and Ted Olson, we're, we're seeing a, a reevaluation that sort of highlights how black musicians were central to this story and always have been. And I think that could only help encourage new artists.
10: Well, Trevor, thanks for digging into the story for us and for coming on to Inside Appalachia today to talk about it.
11: Yeah, thank you for having me And I've, I've really enjoyed working on this And uh, getting to explore this Sort of deep history of country music
7: Where is now My father's family That was here So long ago Sitting round The kitchen fireside Brightened by The ruddy globe We shall all Be in that land beyond the skies where there'll be no separation, no more parking, no
0: more We're going to stay in Bristol for our next story. As we just heard, Bristol is known for the 1927 and 28 recording sessions that launched commercial country music. And for the Bristol Motor Speedway, one of NASCAR's most beloved tracks. But it's also home to 44,000 people, split between sister cities on either side of the Tennessee-Virginia state line. Residents in some neighborhoods have been complaining about a noxious stench. It's coming from a landfill on the Virginia side of the line, and a lot of people in Bristol have been complaining about it. For more, I spoke with Sarah Wade, a journalist who recently covered the story for the environmental news site Southerly. So what went wrong with this landfill?
12: Communities near the landfill, some of them have been bothered by like foul-smelling air pollution for years, but quite a few people have said that it started getting worse in 2019, a few years back, and significantly worse in 2020 for a lot of people. And Erica Knopflin, she's one of the main people I interviewed for the story, she said that um, before her family moved in November, they lived in a Bristol, Virginia apartment that was about a half mile east of the landfill. And Erica and her two daughters and young cousin regularly suffered from headaches and sore throats and upset stomachs. She's not alone. Like A, a lot of other people have reported having uh, difficulty breathing, where, um, waking up in the middle of the night and having to leave their homes because uh, their, their eyes are burning, their throat's burning. Some, some people have even shown photos of themselves wearing gas masks inside their own home.
0: So what's happening here? What what is happening with the landfill?
12: So so there are some h- gases that are leaking from the surface of the landfill. One of them is hydrogen sulfide, which is toxic and some other nasty chemicals including benzene, which is a known carcinogen. Um and those gases have been escaping into surrounding communities. The landfill um it's a unique structure. It's it's built in an, a former limestone quarry basically like a rock bowl filled with trash. It was built in 1998. Um, and even back then, there were community members who protested and petitioned against it because it's like right in the, the heart of some pretty residential parts of, of Bristol. The city has said that like there are a number of structural issues at the landfill um, that, have, that have been kind of feeding into this situation. They have found broken pipes, there's excess water excess settlement of the landfill surface. And they've said that all of those things are problems that they've been trying to address. The big thing that they've found, they identified a spot in the landfill where the trash has been heating up to temperatures higher than they have a permit for. Um, And that's, it's called a subsurface reaction. Um, Some people call it paralysis. And it's basically a fire without fire under under the surface, that's probably driving a lot of these emissions. And this is something that temperature data from the landfill suggests uh, could have started as as early as summer of 2020. But the the city misreported. They basically said in their reporting from 2020, they didn't have any excess temperatures. And if they had correctly reported that, then they were supposed to have taken repair action by late 2020. Um, but they didn't start responding until the spring of the 2021.
0: Where are we at now, and kind of what's happened since your story ran in early December?
12: There have been several new developments in in the situation, but um, I think the biggest one is that you know people are still suffering acutely from the pollution. It doesn't seem to be improving significantly in hard hit areas of, of both Bristol's, and that's despite the fact that the city has finished um, installing and, and connecting these new gas wells in the landfill, which are supposed to trap more of the gas. It's escaping into communities. So uh, on January 3rd, Bristol, Virginia city manager and city attorney, Randy Eads sent a letter to the EPA and the Virginia Department of Environmental Quality, uh, basically saying that, that like, hey, it's not working um, and asking for EPA and Virginia Department of Environmental Quality to take a more active role in, um, in helping the city come up with a solution and also asking for more funding help. A few days after that, three members of Congress who represent Bristol, Virginia, uh, also wrote to EPA Administrator Michael Reagan and, and basically echoed that and asked for EPA to take a more active role in helping. The community is still um, reporting just intense uh, misery from and, and, and acute health impacts from from the air pollution. In the reports I'm seeing on the Facebook page, there's just still a lot of pleas for help um, People saying, hey, you know, the gases are in my home tonight, can't sleep, burning eyes, burning throat. So every day that there's not a solution, there are people who are still really, really suffering.
0: That was Sarah Wade, a freelance reporter now based in North Carolina. She wrote about the landfill troubles for Southerly, which covers stories about the U.S. South and its changing environment. Southerly used input from church and community leaders to create a brochure about the landfill for local residents. You can find a link to her story and more resources on our website, wvpublic.org. If you're a longtime listener of Inside Appalachia, you might recall we have an occasional segment called What's in a Name, where we try to find the backstory of Appalachian towns or cities with odd names. Well, this next story comes to us from high school junior Cody Frye. He's a student reporter at the Fayette Institute of Technology. And he looked into the history behind how the town of Poca, West Virginia, got its name.
13: My name is Cody Fry, and today we'll be exploring a smaller town in West Virginia called Poca. Poca is a community on the Kanawha River in Putnam County. The town's population only has about 1,050 people. So how did Poca get its name? We have William Parkins, a resident of Poca, to help explain just that.
7: I think, I don't think it was official, uh, I think it was an uh, Indian name of the Poca Talico River, and I think it's more of a myth than anything. Supposedly, there was an Indian that was involved in the Battle of Point Pleasant, was trying to escape, and uh, in view of my home, uh, a cliff it'd be on the north side of the Poca River. They call it him, uh, Poca He was being pursued and he supposedly jumped off of a rock cliff and broke his leg and swam across the river and was buried on a couple big cedars. I can remember that right in the turn of the river here just out of Poca.
13: Poca High School was first established in 1922, and it was first called Pocatalico District High School. The original mascot was an Indian to reflect off the community's Native American name. After the community became known by the shortened name of Polka, the school mascot was changed to the dot. We also have William Jones, the mayor of Polka, to go more into detail about this change.
7: Yeah, our uh, nickname is uh, Poka Dots. Years ago, when I was in high school, we was called it Indian now this changed to polka dot back in the 70s, early 70s. It was due to a reporter who was watching a, ball, a football game between polka and I believe it was Point Pleasant. And uh, they seen that there and one of the reporters said, uniforms out there, they look like polka dots. So and they was running after a football player. And you see them scatter all, do all the football field there. And they, the guy called it polka. So it looked like a dot. Look like the polka dots, and it kind of, like, stuck with us.
13: And the nickname stuck. It's been over 50 years, and the community of polka is still rooting for their polka dots.
7: It's a very friendly, nice location. People are very friendly. Basically, most of the older people in town all have some kind of family relation. Most of us are related to all the coal mining population here from, like, in the early 1900s hundreds of families still here. So that
13: wraps up the town of Poca. If you have any other stories about Poca or know any other place in Appalachia with an interesting background or name, send us a tweet at #InAppalachia hashtag what's in a name, and we might explore it. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Cody Fry.
0: That story was produced with mentorship by our producer Roxy Todd. For the past few months... Roxy's been working with Cody and his classmates at the Fayette Institute of Technology to learn how to make radio stories. We'll hear two more stories from this project next month. Last year, we heard a story that featured West Virginia filmmaker Teja Baumgartner and her writing partner, Ashley Ellis. At the time, the two were working on a fictional series based on Ellis' experiences at an addiction rehab center. Since then, the film project is wrapped, but Ellis passed away from her substance use disorder. June Leffler recently caught up with Baumgartner and Ellis' mother.
14: A pilot episode of Her Hope Haven premiered to an audience in Charleston. The show is set in a group home for women who have substance use disorder and are in recovery. Certain scenes come straight from the lived experiences of Ashley Ellis, who helped write the show. Debbie Ellis is Ashley's mother. All Ashley and I wanted was to save a life. In an interview with WVPB last year, Ashley said she wanted to share her story in case it could help others in any way. But last fall, Ashley died from an overdose after years of being in recovery.
9: Even when she's doing well and somebody would ask me, how is Ashley doing? I'll say she's fine at this moment. I always tag that because the sad thing with addiction is it roars out of nowhere. And um, I knew it was a possibility every single moment. And I knew she could die at every single
14: moment. Debbie says Ashley was doing great for about three years. After getting out of rehab, Ashley started making a name for herself in the recovery community. She worked as a peer support coach, and in her free time, she would get up in front of exhausted grandmothers to offer advice on how to cope with addiction in their families. That's how filmmaker Tija Bumgardner met Ashley. She was looking for subjects for a documentary. I just like
9: sat there in awe of her. Even at that point, I was just like, oh. I
14: love her. <laughs> Bumgardner was drawn to Ashley, and in turn, the Ellis family offered complete access and honesty to Bumgardner. It was a perfect match to tell a story about how addiction can touch every member of a family. This story that
12: we don't get to hear as often in the media of a family who has worked so hard to build back what could have been shattered.
14: Gardner began filming moments of their lives. She captured sticky situations like custody proceedings and solemn moments like when Ashley found out her friend died from an overdose. But Bum Gardner also filmed uplifting milestones in Ashley's life, like Ashley getting engaged and having her second child, as Ashley describes in this clip. I'm pregnant. I can, like, feel my
5: kid moving inside of me, and it's, like, really cool because I'm like, oh, my God, like. He's moving because he's healthy, and he's just a healthy baby in there, you know? But it's just so different now. Like, I have a lot of stuff to live for now. Before, I felt like I didn't. Ashley came a long way.
9: She did very well. She was clean. She was um, very, extremely over-the-top active and accessible um, to anyone who needed her 24-7. But what happened was they put her on a pedestal. And anytime you're put on a pedestal... You get knocked off eventually
14: by yourself. No one can know exactly what Ashley was going through before her death, but she did lose her fiance to an overdose. And Debbie knew Ashley was grieving and depressed.
9: I was looking at some texts last night, and in it, I'm asking her if she wants to go home. <laughs> and home is our code word for the treatment center in Louisville because they have a A sign above their door, home, sweet homeless. So that was our code for I need treatment is all she had to say to me was I need home and we're on the road.
14: Debbie says in that text conversation three days before her death, Ashley reassured her that she was doing okay. She was taking medication to help and reaching out to friends.
9: And so we thought she was okay. And then I got a call that she wasn't okay.
14: Folks close to Ashley came to her home, even though there wasn't anything that could be done at that point. Bumgarner also rushed over, this time without her camera. And Debbie got there
12: and just wanted to hold her and not let her go. And then Debbie's like, are you filming this? And I was like, no. And she's like, well, you're not really a documentarian, then are you?
14: Gardner said she reacted as a friend in grief before considering the project at that moment. But since then, she's had space to consider how the documentary will reflect on Ashley's death. The film will disclose Ashley's passing, but it will end on a scene of her alive with her two children and her mother and her recovery community.
9: And it ends in this hopeful way that I think it would just do a disservice to all of the work and love of this family to make it feel so finite and maybe not leave enough hope for others.
14: Bum Gardner lost her friend and others to substance use disorder. In her version of Ashley's story, she can't lose out on hope, too. As for Bum Gardner's film projects, she hopes to film seven more episodes of Her Hope Haven and screen her documentary, Picture Proof, for audiences across the nation. For Inside Appalachia, I'm June Leffler.
0: That story was produced as part of an ongoing series, Appalachia Health News a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting with support from Charleston Area Medical Center and Marshall Health. Recovery from addiction is possible. For help, please call the free and confidential treatment referral hotline, 1-800-662-HELP, or visit findtreatment.gov. next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by West Swing, Dinosaur Burps, the Carolina Chocolate Drops, Rhiannon Giddens as heard on Mountain Stage, the Carter Family, L. Watson, the Johnson Brothers, Jimmy Rogers, and Alfred G. Carnes from the Bristol Sessions, Dina Jennings, and Byron Thomas. Roxy Todd is our producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Alex Runyon is our associate producer. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at in Appalachia. You can also send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There, you can also subscribe or download all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.